0: Welcome to More Than Special with Jermaine Sufort. Our program is of interest to parents, family members, and caregivers of children and adults with special needs. Whether it's an acquired delay or one from birth, we'll speak with experts to bring you answers, information, and compassion. Now, here's your host, Jermaine Sufort.
1: Hello, this is Jermaine. I'm here with Deirdre and Anne, and we're going to be talking today about addressing severe behavior safely. You can also visit us at morethanspecial.org, where we're going to have a lot of resources for you after the show. But I wanted to quickly introduce, let's go ahead and start with Anne. Hi, Anne.
2: Hello.
1: Good morning. Hello. Would you like to share a little bit about how you got into the field?
2: Sure. I've been um, in the field, actually, since 1998. I'm a BCBA since 2005, and I, I actually fell into the field just by um, knowing some individuals that did have autism and severe behavior and just really wanted to do my part and help and just fell in love with the science um, and what it could do to change behavior for the better and the technology that we have to really influence and um, help families is pretty amazing right now. So, and it just keeps getting better. So
1: I'm happy to. That's awesome. So I, I know since 2005 seems like a long time because our field has changed so much. Mm
2: -hmm, Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And Deirdre, how about you go ahead and
2: introduce
3: yourself? Thanks for having me. And this is one of my favorite topics. And um, I got into the field, I fell in love, and um, that's how I got into behaviorism, wanted to follow somebody to graduate school, and uh, fell out of love and (laughs) left grad school and um, started working with kids that have uh, severe complex needs, uh, intense language needs and intense intense behavior needs. Um, I've been a behaviorist um, forever. I've been at BCBA since um, the early 2000s. And um, I've worked for CFCI Consultants for Children for several years, and um, we address a lot of severe problem behaviors in our agency.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and with our topic being about severe behavior today, um, the, the reason why I wanted to have it as a topic is because we see it so frequently and it's so preventable. Yeah. And even... Even if a behavior has already started, the chain of events has already started, It we can address things so that they don't, kids don't end up in really severe places in life. And being that we see this at work yeah. on a regular basis, sadly, um, and, you know, at work and talking with you guys, like including child protection, including different court systems, including A lot of hospital stays, those things really are preventable. And um, they're preventable and and
3: they're traumatic to children. And 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 they're traumatic. To go through. And, you know, when we look at um, one of the things I always hope that parents come away with this is that any one of us as a parent could have a child with severe problem behavior.
2: Yeah. that it can happen
3: to any anyone. one of us it's a just a confluence of events confluence of diagnoses and setting events and mm. contingencies that this child responds to that they've learned these severe problem behaviors and so it's not because of your parenting or bad parenting or being permissive or being um very restrictive in your parenting it can happen to anyone um, our point. job, yeah, because it's, you know, parenting is full of guilt. <laughs> no matter what you do, <laughs> it's full of guilt. Um, but our job is, as professionals is to help parents and to help children learn the skills that they need in order to deal with frustrating and difficult situations without engaging in problem behavior.
1: Yep. That's a really good point. Because I also think that there's a lot of people who are, let's say, teachers or other professionals in the that work with kids who they have the guilt as well. Like, why can't they figure this out? You know, they're supposed to like get a magic, you know, I have a master's degree. I should know what to do. And it's not always the case.
3: Is that it has been figured out is that there are, you know, there are a number of behaviors who have figured out how we can deal with um, intense problem behavior safely through the application of evidence-based ABA procedures.
1: Yeah. yeah, and so for those who don't know, ABA applied behavior analysis, um, it's the use of taking data, implementing different strategies, and seeing what increases and decreases behaviors that you're focusing on. It's not Absolutely. It's not much bigger than that, really. <laughs> if you want to decrease something and you want to increase something else, then you um, take data and change the environment and and you can see whether or not it's working.
3: And that's, I think that's the heart of, we've been doing um, what's called an interview informed synthesized contingency analysis. Um, wow, you're gonna have to unpack huge, that one. I'll tell you, it's a <laughs> terrible name. It's a big, huge, right in, it took us months. Yeah. To learn how to say <laughs> this, <laughs> we we practiced really hard. Yeah. But it's, a, it's a crummy name, and uh, the the per, the people that developed this protocol readily admit to that. Today, Dr. Greg Hanley, that it's a crummy name for a great protocol. And what this may I may I explain this a little? Yes, bit? Yes, okay. please. What the protocol um, does is that when we when we work with families that have children, teenagers, young adults with severe problem behavior. It's, you know, it's greatly, obviously, greatly disruptive to family life. And our intervention starts with that recognition of the parent as an expert on their child. Um, So, we start with an interview with the parent. And in that interview, it's it's a little longer than this, but basically all we ask is, what turns on this problem behavior? Mm -hmm. What do you need to do to turn on the problem behavior? And people will say things like, um, if I ask him to brush his teeth, that'll be a 30-minute tantrum with severe problem behaviors. Um, If I give him a a direction, if we have a transition, if, um, if his brother bugs him. So they, you know, parents know, how can I turn on this behavior? If I asked you to do it right now, what would you do? I'd walk up and take his iPad out of his hand. Right. Boom, problem behavior.
2: Yeah, yeah. and you know? also the thing I always like to add to Andrea is the stopping behavior in, in its tracks. And Dr. Henley uses that term a lot because it gives a good. It's a good metaphor for how do we turn on behavior? How do we stop behavior? Parents know that parents are the experts.
3: Parents will tell you how do I turn it on? How do I? You know, we're looking at turning on the behavior, stopping the behavior. Mm-hmm. How do we do that? Turning on are the um, uh, evocative operations. Turning it off are the synthesized reinforcers. We turn it on by making a demand, taking something away, um, changing conditions. We turn that behavior off by giving you what you want. I want to sit in my comfortable chair with my iPad. No no
1: problem behaviors. And that can change day to day, probably from school to home.
3: So it does, it does. What we do in the pro, what we do as we work with kids with severe problem behaviors is usually there's their problem behaviors fall into a response class. And in behaviorism, we're looking at this behaviorism or ABA. I know those terms we will throw them around a little bit. But what we look at are what are all the things that your child does that are co-occurring behaviors to the very severe problem behaviors. Precursor behaviors, how do you see them start to wind up? When do you start to get that knot in your stomach that things could go south? And we look at all of these behaviors regardless of how they look from punching, kicking, hitting, spitting, yelling, crying, saying no, refusing, turning away, body tensing. All of these have different appearances, but we take them all together into what's called an open response class. And what we know from ABA literature and what has been well documented, that is that if you reinforce one member of that response class, you've reinforced them all. Mm. So what we try to do to keep this safe with kids that have severe problem behavior is we reinforce the um, lower um, intensity, lower problem behaviors saying no. Okay, sure, you can have your own way. I don't want to do this. Fine. You can have your own way. You can have the iPad back. You don't need to brush your teeth now. Because our priority is safety, number one. So how do you get the kiddo to brush their teeth then? We wait and we set up first. Our first priority is safety with serious problem behavior. And we keep that as our first priority. If that means we don't brush our teeth for three days, it is not going to be the end of the world. But we are going to keep the family and the child safe during that interim. And then, you know as we know with kids with severe problem behaviors severe problem behaviors come and go Sometimes you can say brush your teeth and the kids like yeah can i do it for 4 minutes instead of 2 right you know there's that inconsistency that you you talked about earlier
1: yeah but he, but, but there has to be at some point when you actually need the kiddo to brush their teeth again absolutely, and, absolutely. And so how do you, how do you get back into having those higher expectations
3: So what we, our first priority as we deal with severe problem behaviors is safety,
1: Mm -hmm.
3: you know, safety of the child, safety of the family, safety of our staff. Um, That we, that's our first priority. So as we go into the first sessions with families, um, we will help them set up things to do when we're not there, how to keep a lid on it when we're not there. But during our session, uh, the first thing we do is we do a practical functional analysis where we show that we can turn off and turn off turn on this problem behavior. Mm -hmm. We can turn it on with evocative events, things that do something. Give me your iPad. um, Go sit at the table. Eat your dinner. Um, And we can turn it off by saying, oh, yeah, you can stay here and play some more on the video game. Great. So we, we turn it on, turn it off. We do that several times. And as soon as we show that we have control over the behavior, we start to teach a functional communication response that substitutes for, that takes the place of the problem behavior. So we teach a functional communication response in a very ordered protocol. We go through that. We do some um, differential schedules of reinforcement. So we strengthen up that that, uh, functional communication response. Then we start teaching the child some delay and tolerance responses. They're not always going to be in my way. They're not always going to be able to access their reinforcement contingencies. You have to brush your teeth once in a while, right? So we teach the kids um, or the young adults. I refer I refer to them often as kids, our clients, ways to deal with. Sure, you can have your iPad after you brush your teeth. Mm. You know, those kind of strategies. And as we're teaching this delay and denial um, tolerance strategies, we teach the kids a verbally mediated response. When we say to them, no, not now, they say, okay, no problem. And sometimes we reinforce that response. Sometimes we let them um, go back to my way. Sometimes we insist that they continue with whatever it is we're asking them to do.
1: And that seems really kind of scary to take on like I could see parents being really concerned or anxious maybe about starting that because it's been so out of control for so long
3: exactly it has been and I think that's that's some of the power that we we have parents involved in every step of the way you know to for a number of reasons one is that when we look at what reinforcement contingencies children usually want It's um, you know Anne and I see this every day. It's usually access to tangibles, an iPad, (laughs) uh, and other tangibles. But frankly, iPads are the top of our list of what kids prefer.
1: I Um, wonder if I wonder if uh, Apple knows
3: that. (laughs) Well, I you know they do, and the game manufacturers do. Frankly, they know that they are developing games that are built to keep people playing the games. Yeah. So, we're dealing with a very sophisticated software yeah. Um, that the kids are using. So, the kids want access to tangibles. They want escape from demands. They don't want us asking them to do anything. Yeah. And they want the attention of somebody that they love and care about. And usually, that's a parent.
2: Yeah. yeah. So,
3: we set up these reinforcement contingencies. We pull all of this together. We don't try to break it apart because, you know… Um, Evidence in ABA practice has shown us that reinforcers are more powerful when they're together than when they're split apart. That's evidence-based practice. Um, So, you know, as parents are afraid, parents are afraid of serious problem behavior. They're afraid of doing things that are going to evoke that behavior. And because of that, we get stuck because we all get afraid of it. Nobody wants to be hit, kicked, bit at, you know, bitten, spit at. Nobody okay. wants that. And we don't want to respond to that behavior in a child. We don't want to have to stop that behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're immediately reinforcing low-level problem behaviors that we've identified with the parents that are part of this open contingency class. And if we immediately reinforce the low-level problem behavior with access to the um, whatever they've identified as something they like, um, the problem behavior goes away.
1: So wants, an example an example of that, you're saying like if a low-level problem behavior might be like yelling versus throwing the exactly. iPad across the room, at, room right. at somebody's head. Exactly. So you reinforce the low-level one so that they don't get higher. Boom. Absolutely. Right. Yes. Yeah.
2: And this is a shaping procedure. <laughs> um, and shaping is we're reinforcing approximations to a long-term goal. So this is baby steps, and that's why it's safe. And even to back up a little bit, like Deandra was mentioning, the open-ended interview, which is so integral to this process, um, because it allows us to build rapport with the parent, and right. we're we're acting like behavior detectives. We're looking and for discoveries about what is happening, specific and individualized to this family. Like, right. what is this behavior communicating? Yeah. Um, how did this persistent problem behavior get shaped up over time? Like we want to talk to the parent, build rapport with the parent, even teachers. Dr. Hadley describes him building rapport, like, let's go have a conversation. Um, Identify these unique contingencies because they're very unique. There's not one, like when we were trained, it was, there would be specific contingencies we'd look at. These are unique to each individual Social context, really every family, um, and it sets up a safe, quick analysis for us to be able to do this. And on average, this could take twenty-two minutes versus hours and hours of. Wow. Danger. It's like turning on problem behavior when it gets really extreme can be very dangerous. So, yeah. and I
3: think I think one of the things we've learned, and uh, it, it, as behavior analysts, is that. The parents can describe to us what the extreme problem behaviors are,
2: mm-hmm. what
3: they look like, what the kick, you know, what the physical mm-hmm. aggression looks like, what the property destruction looks like, what the self-injurious behavior looks like, all of that. We don't have to see that in an analysis to be able to control that behavior.
2: Right.
3: We don't want to see that extreme behavior in an analysis. We want to immediately reinforce that those lower level problem behaviors that are part of that contingency class so that we close down the need for engaging in problem behaviors to get what you need, Mm -hmm. get what you need or want.
2: Yeah. And it's, you know, kids with language delays, it's the quickest, easiest way to get their needs met. Mm -hmm. through problem behavior. And the quickest, easiest way to get them to stop that behavior is to give them what they want. So we get this whole vicious cycle. Stop the behavior and kids get their needs met. Even if it's through problem behavior. Right. And
3: knowing that, you know, when we look at the, um, our compassion to families, this can happen to any family. It can happen to any person. It happens with children more with developmental delays and autism spectrum um, diagnoses. Um, but it's not, it's not bad parenting. It's a, an unfortunate series of, of um, consequences that result in the development of a problem behavior. Mm-hmm. And we can, you know, As we show parents, none of this is quick and easy. I mean, we the process is safe. The process is quicker than other perhaps um, functional behavioral analysis um, analyses, but it's 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 not easy. Mm. You know, we're we're doing a behavior analysis coming up an ISCA protocol with a client um, who's currently in inpatient care and. Um, it takes hours and hours and hours of us working with our team to get everybody so you know how to progress the EO, so you know how to start giving instructions, so you know how to start making demands. Because yep. we're, we're teaching kids who's you know, are very easily triggered. They're zero to 60. You know, it's very quick for them to go to nothing, to something big. Mm-hmm. Right. And once we, but that's, the end of it is not once we stop the problem behavior, or once we can turn it on and off, and once we start teaching the functional communication response, that's just the beginning.
1: Right. You yeah, because there's, there's still a, a happy person that needs to show up. There's still and a happy person, yes. Yeah, and so so just addressing the highest, most risky behavior doesn't necessarily equate to happiness, right? No, no, no. no yeah, no. so so how how do you see that as being – do you actually see such success that you Mm -hmm. end up with a happy person and a happy family? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, and it's like, think about it as removing barriers. What are those interfering behaviors that are barriers to, if we're saying happiness equals social contacts and expanded um, exposure to different environments where there's reinforcers. So these behaviors are interfering in that they prevent them from having Friendships, maybe even going to school, a lot of these kids. You're right. Um, accessing reinforcers that you and I would probably not even realize are just everyday reinforcers. I mean, children <laughs> can't go into the community at all. Like,
3: I mean, we didn't realize all those reinforcers till <laughs> COVID hit.
2: Right. And I'm like, <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. But, if but you we, can't be safe in a car, then you probably aren't going to yeah. be in and a car a listening. Ride. Yeah, right. Exactly. And And we ask a little thing, but, you know,
3: Anne had mentioned how individualized this is. We ask parents, what does happy look like for you?
1: Mm -hmm. What
3: is your goal for your family? You know, some parent may say it's going on a hike with my kid. I can't. That's what we all did before we had children. You know, we'd love to do that again. So then, as Anne says, removing barriers. Mm -hmm. How do we teach? We've gotten, now we have the behavior so we can turn it on and off. We've taught a functional communication response. The child or person is saying, my way, my way, please. Excuse me, Deirdre, may I have my way, please? Excuse me, Deirdre, may I have. They've learned those responses. Um, They've learned a delay and tolerance response where we're saying, "Ah, not right now. Right now you need to. Go to the, ta- we call it the table of high expectations. Go uh-huh. to the place where we're asking you to do hard work and we're requiring you to put out your best effort. Yeah. Let's do that now. So then we would shape, like, how do we go on a, go on a hike? Well, we get the right clothes on. When mom says, take your sun hat, we say, okay. Yeah. Oh, you know, when mom says, let me help you put on your sunscreen. You've learned how to get the sunscreen on.
1: Yeah. yeah. So there's you know, so many.
2: Things and there's so
3: many that yeah, there's so many steps that we help teach so parents can reach what they've defined in the interview process as happy for their family.
1: Yeah. So, so going from you know a family who is so concerned, maybe CPS has already been involved. Maybe school has already suspended the kid once or twice. These behaviors are very serious. Mm-hmm. And I mean I, I know there's been clients where we've heard that the police are involved for yes. injury to property. Well, injury to self, others and property destruction. destruction. To property. Like there's yeah.
3: But I loved your saying injury to property. Injury to property.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but the you know the that that fear that you're gonna lose your kid. Yeah. It's A very serious concern and then you know there's a lot of kids who are over medicated on psych meds so that they aren't aggressive or so that they get a good night's sleep so that they're less aggressive likely Mm -hmm. there's to go from that and and you're suggesting that the possibility of having a happy family at some point it seems kind of unreal almost
3: and and it is you know it certainly is possible and it is something that we've seen happen with families. But I just, I just want to say that all of this happens in collaboration with the family and with other professionals. So, you know, there are um, psych- psychotropic medications are very necessary for a lot of kids to be able to um, adjust the, the chemical makeup of their brain so they are able to respond in a, in a, in a kind of a calmer way to not be so um, hyper- so, yeah. turned on. so we work in collaboration with psychiatrists, with the nurses, with schools uh, all the time so that we can generalize what we're teaching in a, a therapeutic environment to a larger environment. So we're always, as we work, we're always looking at, we have to go after, initially we go after the most impactful, easiest things that we can change. Yeah, always with our eye on generalization, other settings, other people, how is this going to work? How is he going to learn to respond to somebody else saying, hand me your iPad, turn it off right now. No, turn to page 33, not page 36. How do you respond to somebody saying you did that wrong? Do it again. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's where once we get the, you know, the problem behavior is, um, we have to have a safe way to eliminate, and I know that's kind of a radical thing to say, but to eliminate problem behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, And once we do, once, you know, once we work on that safely, then we can teach functional communication responses, delay intolerance responses, and the skills this child needs to be able to access um, educational environments, community settings, Mm -hmm. home activities, brushing your teeth,
1: Yeah, going for the hike. Yeah. And it's
2: all of this access to attention. Even a part of this protocol is teaching how to get people's attention. Mm -hmm. attention. So it's not because, and we can talk about this too after the break, but your reinforcement is very variable. We don't know when it's coming. It's unpredictable. So we Mm. create um, context where we set up these situations so it is unpredictable because that's how life is. You don't know when you're getting reinforced. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Sometimes we say okay, sometimes it's no. Right. So sometimes we have access to toys and attention. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we can escape from instructions. Sometimes we can't. Absolutely.
3: Right. (laughs) Right. How do you deal with it in a way that is safe? Yeah. And and when we look at this um, in a trauma informed lens,
1: Mm. we
3: look at that you know the ISCA protocol as being very much um, a consistent with trauma-informed care. It's safety. We're trying to ensure the physical and the emotional safety of everyone involved in what we're doing. Um, It is choice. I I didn't mention this, but during all of our intervention, the the client has a choice whether to stay or go in the setting. It's an open-door policy. We're not blocking someone from leaving the therapy room.
1: Mm. Um, That must be really hard with somebody who's having such severe behavior to give them a choice of leaving. It's a, it's, it's, it is a real leap of faith. Yeah.
3: It's, but it takes away then blocking the door. And once you start to physically block a door, you're going to escalate behavior.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. If I wanted to leave and you wouldn't let me, I'd knock your right in the face. (laughs) Knock your block block off. (laughs)
3: Yeah. Um, We make decisions uh, in collaboration with family, client, other professionals, Um, We are very clear in what we're trying to do and we've set real boundaries. So there's trustworthiness and there's empowerment. Um, We're prioritizing empowerment and skill building. Yeah. Um, So very much aligns with that uh, trauma-informed care. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that'll be a great place for us to pick up when we come back after the break. Um, And definitely trauma-informed and the number of kids that we see who have past trauma, it's unbelievable um, that the number of kids that have survived okay. such difficult things. Yes. So cool. Well, we'll go to break and we'll be right back. Thank you guys.
2: Uh-huh. Thank you.
0: Every Saturday morning, listen for the Superstar Sports Talk Block on Voice America Variety. We've got the best programs if you want to talk football, hunting, outdoors, racing, and more. The weekends belong to sports, and you'll find it every Saturday beginning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time. You'll hear from the players, owners, experts, and fans from around the world. It's the Saturday Superstar Sports Talk Block. Wow, that's a mouthful. And it's only on the Voice America Variety channel. the bottom line in business talk. You're listening to More Than Special with Jermaine Sufert. To connect with Jermaine or if you have a question or comment about the show, send your email to jermaine at morethanspecial.org That's G-E-R-M-A-I-N-E at morethanspecial.org Now, Back to the show.
1: Well, welcome back. We're here with Anne and Deirdre, and we're talking about um, addressing severe behavior safely. And we left off talking about trauma and um, trauma-informed behavior analysis. And I want to go ahead and pick up there because uh, at the break, really quickly, we were talking about how it doesn't have to necessarily be parents that we're working with, but a lot of families who have trauma it may be an extended family member or a foster family that's actually caring for a kiddo who's potentially lived through some pretty difficult things. They may be more reactive to smaller expectations that, you know, neurotypical, less trauma-impacted kiddos may be able to tolerate. So how do you, how do you address such, I guess, severe cases with such hard stories and, you know, difficult places where kiddos may be living, maybe less, um, you know, the families maybe have less buy-in, maybe their short-term living arrangements? How do you handle those kind of more severe life realities?
3: Well, I think the the magic about severe problem behavior is that when somebody engages in it. Everybody wakes up. It becomes a priority, whether you're in a short-term setting or in a long-term setting. If if somebody is engaging in um, physical aggression, property destruction, um, elopement, those are severe behaviors. People, boom! Everybody's awake. Nobody yeah. nobody misses it. It's it's a real. <laughs> that's why severe problem behaviors are so effective. Um, we can't we can't you can't ignore them, frankly.
1: Yeah. So, no, that's a great point because in any setting, in the community, school, prison, anywhere you are, if you start throwing things at people's heads, everyone pays attention. Everybody pays attention. Yeah, and, every,
3: and then we respond in different ways. The responses, you know, ranges from um, you know intensive punishment to um, whatever other responses people do in the in the environment. But yeah. severe problem behavior is going to be noticed. Mm-hmm. And and it is what you know what we're what we're finding and what we're exploring and what has a huge um, history in in um, the scientific analysis of behavior uh, is that reinforcement works. The quicker you reinforce, reinforce, and the more the more um, powerfully you reinforce, the um, the quicker you can change condition. So if we see a problem behavior, and again, we are always looking at what we are when we, one of the things we do during our interview with whomever the caregiver is, is that we try to identify um, an open class of um, responses. And because this is an open class, we as behaviors are making some inferences. Hmm. So when we go into wherever we're going, wherever we're working, and right now we're doing some of this with, um, you know, our people on the ground and we're, we're using the best, uh, best practice telehealth uh, synchronous video um, conferencing to have a person in the home and perhaps a BCBA um, doing synchronous, uh, synchronous FBA with that person. Um, but as soon as we see anything in that response class, we immediately reinforce that. Yeah. To And then by allowing that person access to their identified reinforcers. And and this is, or Jermaine, this is kind of, and Anne and I have talked about this a lot. This is kind of the hardest part of this protocol, is that in the past, we've told people ignore the problem behavior. Don't reinforce it. You know, uh, put the, whatever contingencies we had in place, do those, but don't try not to reinforce it. We yeah. are saying immediately reinforce that. And this is causing, you know, kind of caused our heads to explode initially.
1: Right. Oh, it doesn't reinf- it doesn't necessarily make sense to mm-hmm. reinforce something because you know you know it'll get worse if somebody doesn't reinforce it the next time. And so how do you how do you come to accept rewarding somebody for having a negative behavior? Negative, quote unquote, because effective behavior. Mm-hmm. How do you reinforce that? and how do you justify reinforcing that when it could you know that they could hurt somebody
3: because well absolutely and because we will, our priority is safety that yeah. is you have to always keep this in mind our number one priority is safety and this right. causes you know as we train staff and work with our staff and work with um, all of us, this has been one of the hardest things for us to get our head around. Why are we reinforcing what we called before, you know, these problem behaviors? And we refer to them as problem behaviors in this, in this context also. Yeah. And the reason, the reason we reinforce them is that we know through um, years and years and years of behavioral research and study is that um, if you reinforce, uh, once you reinforce the behavior, you can change the context. I've reinforced the problem behavior. Now I can change the context to a context where that person is happy, relaxed, and engaged and is not not dealing in any problem behaviors. Hmm. So I go from condition A. Let me just this is what we do when we get into a home. We go from condition A, which is a synthesized reinforcement contingency. The kids, the the kiddo is sitting on the couch, the client is sitting on the couch, they have their iPad in their hand, you know, they have you know, stuffed toys around them, a weighted blanket, their mom is there, or dad, that person is not making any demands, they're available to respond to any of their social bids, they're not touching their toys, they're not putting any limits on them. It's a very happy condition.
1: Yes. They're
3: there, we walk in, we do what's called progressing the evocative operation. It's very carefully thought out. So we're giving the child visual and auditory cues that a change of condition is going to happen, we're going to make a demand. And we're giving them all those cues so that any point in that, that process, the child can say, no, what are you doing? We can see them, you know, any kind of low level problem behavior. As soon as they say that, boom, they say, what are you doing? I say, okay, no problem. I put my hands up, I get back down into a different body posture. So I'm giving them cues again, that the condition has changed and that then we're recording how long does it take for that child to get back to happy, relaxed, and engaged. And once they're in happy, relaxed, and engaged, again, we progress the evocative operations. We come again, we stand up, we clap our hand gently, we move closer. We say, stop what you're doing, hand me the iPad. We Then if they give us the iPad, we say, okay, stand up, walk over to the table, sit down, sit up, you know, whatever directions we're gonna give to address the next um, task. But anytime they, they engage in a low-level problem behavior, we immediately reinforce that low-level problem behavior with return to the reinforcement condition. And the reason we do this is we want some breathing room. We want a space between the evocative operation and the, the problem behavior where we can teach a functional communication response. Mm. And that's really what we're developing. Once we turn off that, you know, that escalation of the problem behavior, that we're immediately reinforcing low level problem behaviors, we're giving ourselves some space to teach new behaviors. Yeah.
2: And it actually reinforces, on the other end, it reinforces parents' behavior. We're empowering parents um, because they're seeing that, hey, this works. Mm. Yeah. It's easy. And they're part of it. Yeah. And they're part of the decision-making process. They're part of the whole process, step by step. Mm-hmm.
3: What's important to you? What are the first behaviors we should be teaching? Yep. and you know, um, and we want you know, we have some limitations. We want to be teaching them in whatever context we're in—the home or the therapy center. Um, so we teach the ease, the the behaviors that we can most conveniently do in that environment, and oftentimes they're the beginning of academic behaviors, which are triggers for a lot of kids that have any kind of um, skill deficits, yep. learning deficits, social deficits. Um, so yeah. we start teaching know, we can start addressing skill deficits then. But the first thing is to safely stop these serious problem behaviors from occurring.
2: Yep. And it's based on, and it's trauma informed because we are really looking at assessment and having these in detail conversations with parents, finding out. And learning like what in the environment triggers these behaviors. It yep. might be something that we would never even think would trigger a behavior. Right. It might be, right. It might be a smell, right? Like a training. Yes. Student. Yeah. Yeah. There was a teacher that um, supposedly this one student just didn't they didn't know why they didn't like this student, but it was because this teacher wouldn't or this para or whoever it was went out to smoke and came back after lunch break smelling like smoke. And mm-hmm. in the past was associated with abuse so now this just triggered that trauma response um, but without those in-depth informed interviews and conversations the parent would know we would know that without talking to the parent
1: right right so, and sometimes the parents aren't necessarily aware of themselves maybe they weren't physically there but they can right. definitely lead you down a, a path. Right. knowledge,
3: and, and that's what um, th- we've recently started using the safety protocols developed by Dr. Kalu, mm-hmm. And she, you know, we've walked down this path before, but it, it's so big. It's so broad yeah. that you need someone who helps you kind of pull it together and say, this is how you can mitigate these risks. This is how you can identify these possible triggering events. Yeah. And that's what the safety protocols have done. Yeah. So that you know, we look at the safety protocols with the ISCA protocols. It's a very much a trauma-informed way of um, eliminating serious problem behaviors and help eliminating serious problem behaviors so that our clients can learn the social communication, recreation, academic uh, skills that they that they're lacking.
1: That they. And- need if, if a lot of the clients that you guys are working with have limited language mm-hmm. and they maybe don't have the one-to-one correlation of smelling cigarette smoke on somebody and that that's going to make them respond some way, they may not be able to tell you. They
2: don't. No.
1: Yeah, So Mm-mm. so they may not be the person who can no. share that history with you, but they are the one with the negative behavior, the quote-unquote right. problem behavior.
3: Right. And Anne talks about, um, she often says that we're behavior detectives. Yeah. And and that's kind of what we are. We're following one clue after another, after another, after another. um, Mm -hmm. To try to unwind some of these um, historically very challenging cases where people end up in very much restrictive environments um, because of their, what people would call their unpredictable behavior, you know. Usually yep. she's really good, but when John comes on, right. he's hitting and kicking and spitting and fighting yeah. with him. And we didn't realize John smelled like cigarette smoke, which smelled, right. you know, I mean, it's right. that whole. So how do we help to mitigate that, that risk
2: and that response? Um Yeah. And one of the things we've learned here too is how to recognize these signs of trauma. Yes. Um, what does that look like? What does fear look like? What does anxiety look like? You know, like John walks in the room, this client freezes up and stops talking and behavior stops in their tracks or I mean all of these different signs that we are might be subtle but they are indicators that there is anxiety there's fear their potential um like let's say there's a client that dad walks in and the little girl's reading the book and she just stops and looks up at dad and puts down the book and her breathing changes yeah um her heart rate changes. We can't see that, but we can see anxiety responses. Right. It's really being creative and looking at, um, how does this behavior stop in its tracks when a caregiver walks in the room, for example? Mm -hmm. Um, how do they stop playing with toys maybe, or. Right. And then what do we do with that information?
3: Yeah. Uh, You know, how do we say, okay, that's a low level, potentially problem behavior. It's a, it's a, um, co-occurring it's a precursor behavior how do we reinforce that behavior immediately so they don't have to escalate is it that dad gets low and loose he sits down low he says no problem i'm not going to make any demands i'm just here and we do kind of a seeing if we could um pair him with the other reinforcement contingencies to make his presence more reinforcing than punishing or triggering um, so, we're always looking at how do we reinforce these very low-level problem behaviors so we don't have the high-level problem behaviors. Um, so, we don't, you know, some behaviors are known for dealing with problem behaviors. And, and that's, you know, we train all of our staff in how to, um, how to handle with care, how to de-escalate and then what to do if, in fact, there are uh, escalations. Yeah. Um, and we're trying to, you know, highly train our staff to have them not use any of those strategies when there is an escalation.
1: Yeah, so
3: they're able to de-escalate.
1: Yeah, I was I was looking up some um, it's hard to find the anything about like research about the low level mm-hmm. behaviors because they are ignored, not noticed. Or, or what's measured is the high-level behavior that happens when that's ignored. Exactly, and so it's hard to kind of judge how good we are at um, identifying those. Um, But
3: that's yeah. But that's where
1: I, I think that this is where the if if we were able to see those like slight anxiety, slight tenseness. Yes. Um, like you said, changes in breathing; those those things that are like we we almost sense them instead of measure them because you know they're just hard to measure. But the um, if we could see those things and address what we think it is, then then it'd be so much less restraint, so much less. Yes, that's a
2: great point. Yeah, and it, you need staff to look for those things. They're very subtle, but they're noticeable.
1: Right, noticeable, but yeah, just hard to. Mm-hmm. And and really, what happens if you overgeneralize and and you and you believe that this is a precursor behavior or a low level behavior when actually it's just the kiddo adjusting? Like, there's probably no damage in no, no, harm. no harm, right? In over no harm done, yeah,
3: yeah. This is an. Oh, this is the power. An open response class has been studied in behaviorism for over thirty years, so we know that that's real. yeah we know that um when we when we reinforce one member of that class we're reinforcing them all so we there's no harm in us being in a situation with a very um a child who has a history of a lot of aggression Mm -hmm. um our 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 adrenaline is up so we're as we're in that session we're working to maintain our calm low and loose posture our very um Ability to be there and to not be in a reactive uh, position. Um, And if we see a response that we think, huh, you know, speaking to you, like, it may just be an intuition. Huh. I wonder if that tensing the shoulders is a part of this response class. My, my um, directive to everybody is treat it like it is no harm done. Reinforce right there.
1: That, that is so powerful because if you use some of the other things like restraint or chemical sedation those have serious if you overuse any of yeah i mean the negative outcome of allowing it to progress instead of addressing more than maybe you should or need to
3: well it's it's we need you know we are our number one priority is safety and i say that a thousand times because it's our number one priority and if we keep that in mind that our number one priority is safety anytime we err on the side of safety we should be going (laughs) <laughs> yes. You know, we should be giving yeah. ourselves a point, and and I think as behaviorists, we used to kind of come home and say, you know, I restrained this kid today, and you know, I dealt with this really hard problem behavior, and look, you know, I had a dictionary thrown on my nose, and my nose, you know, we used to come home and say, we don't want to, we don't want to be that. That's not behaviorism at its best. Right. Behaviorism at its best is analyzing very carefully, mm-hmm. um, using our science. Very directly, very methodically, very thoughtfully, and that's that's what this protocol is. It's it's a very th- you know the, the um, interview informed synthesized contingency analysis is a very thoughtful protocol. Yeah, um, we're, we reflect on it. That's one of the things I love about this. Is it is behaviorism at its best? We not only take all this data, we're reflecting on it in the minute. Yeah. We're responding. It's a performance based intervention we're responding to the child or client's performance that's you know it's not time-based we're not giving them five minutes in a contingency then we're switching to another contingency for five minutes it's performance-based which is what life is mostly is performance-based you have to get used to dealing with those contingencies so it you know when we look at it of wow this exciting thing that is kind of Sweeping our little world and sweeping the world, when you look at the number of people that are taking these workshops and are interested in on the Behavioral Observation Podcast, which is a podcast that we behaviorists love to listen to, um, the interview with Greg Hanley is the highest downloaded interview. I think there were two of them. It's the highest downloaded interview. We're we're searching for this information. You know, um, Jermaine, I'm getting older. You know, I'm not the cowboy I once was. You know what I mean? I don't want to get hurt. Yeah. And I don't want to traumatize someone. We know yeah. that restraining people is trauma. Yeah. yeah. And
1: it's you know? not it's not good for anyone. There's nobody involved in that. It's not good for anyone. It is not good for anyone. And I I repeatedly think about kids who get restrained in a school setting and it's yes. an SRO, it's not a yes. it's not a teacher or it's you know, and it's in the hall, and then the other kiddos yes, yes, who yes. experience. Now there's this bigger trauma right. of that school is where you get restrained, right. and
3: right. And then you're, and how do
1: you unpack that? Yeah, right. And then you're you're suspended the first couple of times, and then right. you're expelled, and then and then you're not getting any of the academics, and no. then. Are your and parents you know, yeah. working?
3: <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, They're <laughs> like, like spirals. <laughs> it's spirals. It's kind yeah. of. And that's that's why I think when we, we first started to hear about this protocol, we were desperately searching. We had a client that was looking at residential um, treatment. So we were desperately searching. We had a little kind of a two week window in between. Um, wow. And we found this protocol. And Anne, um, it, you know, Anne is the clinical director of the the agency I work for. And her, she does a fantastic job of encouraging us to go with it. At the same time, she's try she's learning it as fast as we are, so that we everything that we learn, she's forming a community for us within our agency, so we have people to support one another, so we have quality control. Yeah. So we have someone to show this data to that's reflecting to us on the protocol and the intervention. Um, and in this time of COVID. Um, it's a little bit more complicated because some of this is now happening over telehealth. So we've added this extra layer in of how do we do this according to best protocol? How do we do this ethically? How do we do this to reach, to break down barriers to treatment that we've had in the past? Yeah. Uh, this person lives in a very isolated area. We can get an RBT there. We can't get a BCBA. How do we do this protocol right. there? So it's, you know, it's a really exciting time for us to be looking at how do we address these severe problem behaviors that we're seeing in a way that is safe, humane, dignified and Mm -hmm. builds rapport with the client and family. Yeah. And this, this ISCA protocol has answered those, um, those needs for us as an, as a group. And, and it's, you know, when we look at how fast it's blooming and blossoming in our agency and the impact that we're having on families.
1: Right. Um, and can you tell me what ISCO stands for? Interview
3: Informed Synthesized Contingency Analysis. <laughs> it's a bad acronym and a bad name.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, um, I know that we will have on the website, morethanspecial.org, we will have a list of resources. I already have some things that you guys have provided, websites and things, so I will be sure that even if we can't remember what ISCO stands for, we'll have some links to be able to do some more research and um, and then future podcasts we're gonna uh, be having one that's about trauma we're going to be having one that's specific to resiliency okay so that will be able to kind of dovetail off of this topic once the the problem behavior has ended
3: absolutely
1: safe what what can we do to continue to work on trauma-informed care and increasing resiliency with kiddos so, and
3: delay and denial tolerance that we do is part is increasing resilience. How do you, yeah, increase, you know, how do you how do you wait to get what it is you want? Yeah. How do you um, continue to learn in the face of challenges? Yeah,
2: and uh, yeah. all of this is attainable. This is something that anyone can learn and do. So absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes,
1: yes. So um, since we're closing up here, um, thank you guys very much for being here and thank you Jermaine um, yeah great topic it's, yeah, very much yeah. Appreciate
3: it. there's a lot of a lot of um I, it, let me I just want to leave you with this the audacity yes, yes. of hope I feel like we are embracing the audacity of hope I love for it kids who are really struggling and families that are struggling there okay. is hope and there is um scientific interventions
1: that work well thank you very much
0: Thank you for listening to More Than Special. Be sure to tune in again for another program featuring your host, Jermaine Suford, next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for being a part of the show.